Amen. Man, I'm so thankful for the God that he is. Amen. Uh, only he can do what he can do. And so this morning, I just want to start off by saying, if you're carrying anything uh, that you feel like God just can't handle, or you feel like you're not good enough to bring it before him, I promise you, he will receive it. If you lay it at his feet, receiving his salvation through grace and mercy, he will meet you right where you are. And I'm so thankful that he is a God that can do what God, he, he only can do. This morning, uh, we are kind of doing a little bit of a follow-up message to our series we just finished up last week. And so uh, we went through the month of January, uh, five weeks, uh, and we did a series called Chasing Carrots. And so if you were not a part of that or you weren't with us for that series for one of the weeks, uh, we want to encourage you to go back. You can go on our website, which is northgoodland.org, or you can download our app by going to your app store, just North Goodland BC in your app store, and you can download that app. Right on the app is all of our latest messages and series and everything. You can just pull it right up on your phone there. But I encourage you to go back. Uh, either if you weren't with us for any of it, you want to check this series out. And if you missed one of the weeks, definitely make sure you kind of fill in and, and find that spot because I, I've heard from people, not just not me saying this, but a lot of people in the church have said that at one week or another, uh, something we hit on really encouraged them, strengthened them, challenged them, uh, maybe in a very good way made them uncomfortable, uh, amen, and made them kind of realize, what am I pursuing? That was the whole point of the series was, what are you pursuing? Uh, when you wake up in the morning, what motivates you to go into your day? Uh, what motivates you to go to work tomorrow? Um, what motivates you to do what you do day to day, to raise your children the way you're raising them or to treat your spouse the way you treat them or whatever it is. What is your motivation, your drive? Uh, you could say it this way. What is the trajectory of your heart? Where do you want to be not only with Christ, if you know Christ your Savior, but just as an individual, as a husband, as a, a father, as a mom, as a, as a wife or a grandparent, wherever it is. And so that whole series was unpacking how we can begin to pursue these things and actually chase these things that we think these things will give us that feeling of happiness, joy, contentment, right? Pleasure. If I could just get this relationship, this person, that job. And so we unpacked a lot of things in there. We talked about the pursuit of money and stuff. We talked about the pursuit of fame. We talked about the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of perfection. We covered a lot of ground in there. Now I want to encourage you, go back and check it out. But this morning, as I was kind of praying through the last couple of weeks and, and where the Lord would have us to go, uh, there was a story that came to my mind. And the story kind of really was where it started with me. And then the Lord kind of used that and just some different things I was reading to kind of apply that story to kind of something I'm seeing. And maybe you've even noticed even in your own life or whether in your own life or just in general, just you see this with believers and even unbelievers. And so I want to set the stage to what we're going to be talking about with a story. And I have to say at the beginning of the story, I have Sandra's complete permission to share this story. Sandra's my wife, if you don't know that. And she, I asked her, I said, hey, this is kind of where I want to go. Are you okay? Now, we've shared this story before with, with people. I don't think I've ever shared it uh, in a sermon, but I probably have. And I most likely didn't ask for her permission at that time. So I've learned. So husbands, it's, it's not about being perfect. It's about learning, okay? We got to learn, fellas. We got to grow, okay? So if you made a mistake 10 years ago, you probably shouldn't be making that same mistake, okay? Amen, ladies? Yeah, okay, all right. We'll get on the, them in a minute. But, but I've seen this trend. And, and the story that came to my mind was when we first got married, when Sandra and I got married, uh, we went to uh, Canandaigua, which is in upstate New York for our honeymoon. 
And so we decided to go up there and uh, we were going to go to Mackinac Island and we saw the prices of stuff up there and we were like, that's not happening. Um, I'm in ministry. She just started teaching. You know, we're broke ex-college students trying to pay for things. So that wasn't going to happen. So we decided to go up to Canandaigua and we stayed at a bed and breakfast. And it actually was uh, owned by uh, Keith Corbett's mom and dad. And so he was the one that kind of recommended it to me. He said, hey, you need to go up there. Beautiful area. And so we went up there. And just so you know, I did get lots of great stories uh, over breakfast from Keith's mom about him growing up. I did see some pictures. It was beautiful. It was amazing. I, every breakfast, I was like, what are we going to hear today? It's going to be great. So we go down there and... Uh, and if you don't know, uh, Keith and I have been friends and Renee really for, since like 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. And so, uh, and this was 05. And so I had known him for a few years, you know, kind of as I knew him. And then I got the backstory. So it was great. It was beautiful. But so it's a beautiful area, right? Like it's, it's upstate New York. There's lakes and scenery is beautiful and all this. And so we decided we're on our honeymoon. So when you're on a honeymoon, sometimes you'll do stuff you don't normally do, right? Like you go to a fancier restaurant, you'll spend a little more money on this or that. So we're like, you know what? We're going to go try a really fancy restaurant, okay? And so we asked uh, Keith's parents, we're like, hey, is there like a really fancy kind of higher class than like, you know, Applebee's, right? Like we want to go a little, little fancier. And they said, yeah, there's this restaurant. And I believe it was the Thindera Inn is what it was called. And so right there, I was like, that sounds like an expensive place to eat. So we're like, all right, we'll go check it out. Now, I should kind of, again, preface this, that dating and everything, Sandra and I, we're not fancy people. We're still not really fancy, okay? Like, fine dining for us is Lucky's Steakhouse, okay? That's like, that's top notch, okay? Yeah, you guys are like, amen, what's wrong? No, I love Lucky's. I'm not knocking Lucky's. I'm just saying, that's like, they put like a cloth on the table. This is high end, okay? Like, we're, we're celebrating something. So we go to this restaurant, and we realize very quickly walking in the door how unrefined we really are, okay, and how much we've lived in Michigan and mostly rural Michigan for a long time. So we walk in, and everything is so formal. I mean, the waiters and everyone, they're so dressed up and everything. We sit down, and we're like, okay, this is going to be fun, you know, and we're kind of laughing about some of the things, and they bring us the menu, you know, and then they said, what would you like to drink? And I realized... And I say soda because I lived in Missouri for uh, when I was in school. So uh, some people give me a hard time with that. I still say soda today, but pop, okay, whatever. Um, I realized asking for soda was not a like normal thing for them because this is also like wine country, right? Like this is beautiful vineyards and all this. And so I'm like, I'll take a Pepsi. <laughs> and the guy actually said, excuse me. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll take a soda, Coke, Pepsi, whatever. He goes, I'm sorry, sir. We don't, we don't sell soda here. Like, he said it like that, too. And I was like, well, fine. I don't want, I'll take water, you know. <laughs> so that was a, right there, we're like, okay. Then we opened the menu, and we realized something in the menu. There's no prices. <laughs> Anybody been to a restaurant with no prices in the menu? Okay, any man that's been in that kind of a restaurant, your first thought, you don't want to admit it, but you're thinking, hmm, this is going to cost me. If they're not even putting the prices in the menu, this is going to be expensive, Okay. But we're like, that's fine. It's fun. You know, I mean, again, we're just kind of laughing about everything. And so everything went great. Everything was fine. The meal was delicious. Okay. It was actually really, really good. So we're like, we're making this through. We're, we're kind of putting it on. Like, we look like we belong here, you know, so we're good. Well, at the very end of the meal, we discovered another way that we were very not refined. So they bring out this little cart. Okay. Dessert cart. They bring it over to the table. And this guy says, would you like a dessert? And I'm thinking, 
I don't even know what I spent on the food and you want to bring me dessert. Like, I mean, I'm broke already. And so I said, uh, sure, yeah, you know, we're going to live it up. We'll have some dessert. So Sandra's sitting there. She's looking at the cart and thinking, mm, okay. Well, they had this cheesecake. And if you know Sandra, she loves cheesecake. That's like one of her favorite desserts. And so she's like, I'll take a cheesecake. And so she reaches for the cheesecake on the cart. And the guy stops her. Like he pulls the cart away a little bit and like, ma'am, ma'am, let me bring you a fresh one. And we're like, oh, okay. So he walks away. Well, apparently this stuff's been on there for a while. You're not supposed to take the food off the cart. It's just for display. Everyone else in the restaurant apparently knew this. We did not know this, okay? So here she is. She's like reaching for it. And the guy's like, ma'am, what are you doing? Like, calm down. We'll bring you a fresh one. It's okay. So we laughed. And so we're looking. She just, I mean, she just turned. And if you know Sandra, she just turned as red as could be. And we chuckled and stuff. And so it was a great time. And I love that memory for a couple things. Number one, I love it because it's one of the first memories we had as a married couple. And just the fun of it. And just looking back on it now and just laughing at the silliness of it all. But I love that because that memory as well, because it reminds me of something that we can do as Christians and we see even our world doing as non-believers. And and this morning, I want to talk about dessert cart Christianity. And I think that we can fall into a trap, a, a common way of treating scripture where we would treat scripture like a dessert cart. And we just kind of pick and choose what appeals to us in that moment. We pick and choose what we think will kind of satisfy that spiritual sweet tooth, if you will. Uh, We see God as the waiter comes over with his word, lays it before us. And we kind of think in the moment, what do I really feel like today? And we just kind of go to scripture and we find a verse that we kind of like, and we just kind of take that one verse and it makes us feel good. And then we share it with others because it made us feel good. And we kind of think that's really all we need from God and his word. And in reality, the word of God is so much more than that. And if we're not careful, we'll treat the word of God like a dessert cart. We do not merely pick the sweets and ignore the nourishment that the word can bring the right and balanced approach. That when we go to the word, we need the right and balanced approach. We don't just pick the sweets, the things that we think we need. We go to the word of God and we look for nourishment. We look for strength. We look for truth, that even when that truth is uncomfortable to receive, we thank God for it because it's strengthening us in an area in our lives. It's preparing us for something that God is going to bring or allow into our lives. And I want to go to a passage of scripture, and I want to look at what I kind of call a principle verse. And so this, this is a principle passage that's going to kind of lay the foundation of what the word of God is. And what it can be for us, the Bible, the word of God. And I know if you're sitting there thinking, you're like, well, is this whole message really just about the Bible? Yeah, it really is. But my point is this. So many of us, maybe you grew up in church where the only time you touched this book was on your way to church and on your way home from church. And the only time you read this book was when the pastor said, turn to this passage. And you turned there, you read it with them. You closed it, you put it aside and you said, okay, I'm good for the week. And maybe some of you grew up in a a church like that, or you grew up doing that in your church. And now, all these years later, you find yourself in that same habit. And you don't want it to be that way, but it's just kind of what you know. Listen, if we ignore this book and the power and the truth that is in this book in our daily lives, we will rob ourselves of the fulfillment and the joy and the peace that Christ desires us to have in a relationship with him. Man, if, if we ignore this book, we're also going to see our decision-making change from Christ-centered to self-centered. If we ignore this book, we're going to see our desire to gather with the body of Christ dwindle down to once in a while. 
But man, when we're engaging this word and we're, 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 we're involved in this, and it's not just something we read because the pastor said to turn there, but we actually desire to know the author of the book in a truer and deeper sense, we will see things like gathering with the body of Christ become vital in our lives because we realize, man, the New Testament does not understand a Christian who's not connected to a local church. That, that there's so much in here that we can serve and love one another, and it happens in the church. Then we'll see things about how we can connect in our community and bless our community and share Christ with our community and see the gospel go forth. Then we'll see a passion for missions start to creep up where now maybe we're not called to go overseas. Maybe you are and you're chasing that carrot of comfort we talked about last week and you're, "Uh, I don't know, God. I don't know if I really want to uproot my whole family and move over to this other nation. Maybe you're being called to do that. And then being in God's word, guess what? The spirit of God will begin to convict and work. And you'll feel this sense, this drawing to just surrender. But maybe you're not meant to go overseas. Maybe it's just supporting missionaries. Maybe it's you'll dig deep and say, you know what? Maybe I don't need as many cups of coffee this week on my way to work. Maybe I'll take that dollar, whatever, $2, whatever, if you're going to Tim Hortons, and $7 if you're going to Starbucks, which I don't know who does that, but whatever, that's your prerogative, Okay. I went to Star- I've been to Starbucks, in a Starbucks, once. It was like a month and a half ago. That's not a joke, okay? And I remember I, I walked in, Cassandra likes some, one of their little frou-frou drinks. I don't know what it's called. I forget now. It's got all kinds of stuff in it. But anyway, and I literally felt like so unprepared. I walked up to the counter, and the guy was like, what can I get you? And I was like, coffee? I don't know. Can I get a double frappa lappa? Chino. I don't know. What are are we doing? Right. But then I saw the menu. (laughs) Who pays that? Anyway, I'm going to like speedway, right? I'm getting the French vanilla out of the thing. Okay. That's what I'm, it comes out kind of powdery at first. That's, mm, that's good. 97 cents. Yes. I'll take six of those. Okay. But if we're not careful, we'll forget the value that we can contribute to missions by just saying, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice this or that little thing in my life. And instead of spending that money this week or this month, I'm going to take that money that's now extra income because I, maybe I don't need to spend it on that. And now I'm just going to give it to the church to give to missions. And now maybe that'll bless someone overseas to be able to do what God is calling them to do. And you might think, well, come on, that's not really going to make that big of a deal. Believe me, it will. And as we're engaged in the word of God on a regular basis, not because we have to or because someone makes us feel bad, but because we know Christ and we genuinely want to get to know him. And by the way, him getting to know us, meaning we surrender more to him. And these things will become priorities in our lives. And we will we'll stop picking and choosing the verses that we want, that we think we need, that appeal to us or sound good to us. But we'll look for nourishment. See, it's great to have a dessert once in a while. I don't know what your favorite dessert is. I'm, I'm a brownie guy, okay? I don't, ice cream's okay, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm a brownie guy. I don't like cake, pie. That's all right at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I'm not a big pie person, okay? Unless it's apple pie with a lot of whipped cream on it, okay? Or ice cream. That's always good vanilla ice cream and apple pie. And so some of you are now thinking about apple pie and ice cream. That's fine. But, but whatever that dessert is that you love, there, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's so good, right? When you have that bowl of ice cream or whatever, and there's things in God's word that appeal, appeal to us in that way. They're just, they're just good. They're the desserts of scripture, the truth of God's love, the things that just, man, it just feels good. But there's other things in scripture that are equally valuable and needed that we don't think we need, but God knows we need. And so I'm going to go to 2 
Peter. Turn with me if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Second Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, in the seats here, there are some Bibles uh, that we provide. If you'd like to use one of those, you can actually just turn to page 857. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 857 is where you can turn Second Peter chapter 1. Now, it's a lengthier passage that we're going to start with this morning. But again, it's setting the framework of just the principle involving the word of God that I want to pull out a couple things here, and then we'll dive into some application. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Yeah, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Now, when he says in this tabernacle, he's referring to his body. He's saying, as long as I'm in this flesh, as long as I'm alive and in this body that God has desired to keep me here, I want to do something. And I want to put you in remembrance of this truth. This is so important that as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to remind you of this. He goes on in verse 14. Knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received of God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you, whereunto you do well, that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I know that we've already prayed, Pastor Greg prayed for us, but let's pray uh, and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds, if you will. Father, we ask that as we come before your word, Lord, that we expose our hearts and our minds to it. Lord, this is not just about an emotional response. This is about an intellectual response. I pray that we would come desiring to hear and learn from your word, that we would see truth and understand truth and how to apply it, Lord. And in response to that, in, in agreement with that, our emotions will match up. That, Father, it's not just a heart thing or a feel-good thing. It's a, it starts with a knowledge of who you are, what your word is, and what it desires to be, what you desire it to be, rather, Lord, in our lives. And, Father, with that should bring great joy and satisfaction. Lord, that you would choose to reveal yourself to us through your word is amazing. I pray that we see it as a treasure and a value that we can spend time getting to know you, Lord. And in reality, as we read more of you, how you interact with mankind, your desires for mankind, truths of salvation, 
repentance, grace, miracle upon miracle of all these things that we read in Scripture, Lord, that we would expose ourselves more to you, surrendering more of ourselves, that we would be in Christ, yes, Lord, through the gospel, but also, Lord, be Christ-like as a desire to live for you. Father, bless now the reading of your word, and may it speak and move as it needs to in people's hearts and minds by the working of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter is writing here, the author of this epistle or this letter, to the early church. And he's writing to believers, and he's desiring to encourage them. And you can see in those first few verses, how many times does Peter say, put you in remembrance? I want you to remember. I want you to know this. This is very vital. This is very important. He's saying this over and over again. And he's saying, even after I'm gone, I want you to know this. And then he moves into this testimony of the the power of Christ and the displaying of Christ and how God was well pleased with Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And I love that as we read this in verse 16, he points out maybe one of the things that were being said about the words of the apostles or the words of Scripture of that day and age, that we don't follow cunningly devised fables. And this is the cry of our culture today, by the way. There are many in our world today that see this book as nothing more than a storybook, just full of good moral teachings from a good moral teacher, that you can live a good life and make good decisions and be a good person. It just reveals those things to us. And the things we don't like in Scripture, the things we don't want to acknowledge, our culture just writes away and dismisses. Well, that's just religious fanaticism. That's just crazy talk. There's no way that's really what God meant. And this book has become attacked and continually attacked on many levels. But we're really not surprised as followers of Christ. When we hear those criticisms of God's word, well, it's not really the word of God. It's just a book written by man. And by the way, I used to think that before I became a follower of Christ. Maybe you thought that. Maybe you think that now. That this book, it's just a book of man's wisdom. Some, some people got together and wrote a book. Right? Or maybe you're of the camp that, well, the church just wanted power and control. And so the church to control finances and politics and all of that in the day and age of the, the history that's recorded here, it was just written to kind of keep that propaganda going, right? To further this understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, to keep people in line, to keep them in subjection. Maybe you're in that camp and you're wrestling with that. Isn't it funny that 2,000 years ago, Peter says, hey, listen, maybe some of you have heard this. These are not fables. That phrase there, that cunningly devised fables, that word fable is the idea of a fictional story, a falsehood. A story that's just a fictional story. It's not true. And Peter is saying to the church, don't listen to that. Don't believe that. Now, I won't spend much time on this this morning, but if you really want to study out the validity of the word of God, the accuracy of the translations that we have, the, the accuracy of the manuscripts and the documentation that we have historically, over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that we can go to and point to. If you want to study all that and talk about all that, I'd love to talk to you more about that. You can email me. We can dialogue about that. I would love that. But I love that Peter pauses here and just reminds the church, hey, we didn't come up with this stuff. That's what, that's what Peter's really saying. We didn't come up with this. He says, now, we were eyewitnesses, right? We saw these things. We walked with Christ. Specifically, Peter is referring to his own personal testimony of walking with Christ, and especially with the Mount of Transfiguration that we see recorded in the Gospels, where Jesus revealed just a snapshot glimpse of his glory, and Peter was there. 
And Peter's saying, we heard God's voice speak in that moment. We saw the glory of God. We saw Jesus transfigured before our eyes. We heard the voice of God. It was a powerful moment. By the way, if you could see that, would your life be different after that moment? How, how quickly and how earnestly would you be wanting to tell people about that experience? Wait, hold on. Let me, let me tell you what happened. We went to this mountain. Jesus is up on this mountain. We're sitting there. We're just waiting to see what's going to happen. And then he is transfigured before our very eyes. He shines with this light that we can't even fathom. He was, the whiteness of his garments were whiter and purer than anything we've ever seen. And then Elijah and Moses appear with him. And we see this happening. And then the voice of God speaks, puts us to our knees. Would you leave that experience and just say, nah, no big deal. No, you would be passionate. Like, I got to tell you what happened. And see, Peter refers to that. But do you notice what he says? He says, listen, that's an amazing testimony. But there's something more sure than that. There's something even greater than my own experience. We all have a story we could tell about God's grace invading our lives, removing our sin and washing us, making us new. We all have a story. Some of you grew up in church, so you don't think you have a testimony. You have a powerful testimony. If you were a sinner and now a saint in Christ, you have a testimony. If your sins are forgiven in Christ alone, apart from any works you do, you have a testimony. Some of you have backgrounds that are different than that. Some of you come out of backgrounds where there was maybe substance abuse or things of that cause. Maybe there was other issues that happened in your life. And so you look back at your life and you're just blown away by God's grace to even save someone like you, to love someone like you. You see, Paul, Peter says, my testimony is one thing, but there's something even greater than my personal experience of this Jesus. And that's the word of God. He says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, something even greater than personal experience. He says here in verse 19, he tells us there's a sure word of prophecy. He says to take heed to it, to give it attention, to listen to what the Bible actually says. And then he says in verse 20, knowing this, that no, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. What that phrase really translates to is it doesn't have human origin. It's not man-made. Another way you could say it is scripture is not of a man's own impulse invention or com composition. It is not human, but purely divine. It is the word of God. It is unique and powerful. The Bible says it is a living word. It is active. It is a two-edged sword that divides even body from bone, joint from marrow. It splits us open. It reveals who we really are. And then that same word that reveals who we are is a healing medicine that comes and is applied to that wound and heals us and strengthens us. It is the word of God. This is truth. Whether you think it's true or not. A silly illustration that I've always heard that I think is the best way to say that is if you came to me and said, listen, preacher, I don't believe in gravity. It's foolishness. It's a conspiracy theory. Gravity, just about control, keeping us on the ground. You'd look at that person, you'd have a couple thoughts. Some you wouldn't voice, some you might. You might want to go over and just, can I smell your breath for a second, please? Can I, you take anything today? What's going on? 
But if this person genuinely was like, no, no, I don't believe in gravity, would they be willing to put it to the test? Let's go on the roof. Let's jump off. Let's test your theory. There is no gravity. Okay, let's go on the roof. About, I don't know, a few seconds before they make impact with the ground, they're going to realize, oh, it is such a thing as gravity. You see, your, your lack of belief in something does not make that thing untrue. You can say all day long, I don't believe it's the word of God. That's fine. That's your choice. You can choose that. But that does not mean this is now ceasing to be the word of God. When we read scriptures that we don't think apply to us, that we don't think we're needed, we can think that, but that doesn't make it any less true. When we have this dessert cart Christianity mentality, we choose what we want. We pick and choose and we lose out on what scripture really desires to be for our lives. And so we need to have a balanced approach to God's word, a balanced approach to God's word. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you just a couple principles real quick. And I say real quick, which all of you that attend here know that means what? Hours, absolutely nothing. Real fast, in closing, these mean nothing here, okay? But I want to give you a couple principles that I hope will help you in your study of God's word. And I want to do this because, and I was praying over this, like, Lord, do I really want to go down this road on Sunday morning? But I feel what happens is we have sermons like this about the power of God's word and we need to give ourselves God's word. And so many people are going, yeah, I need to do that. And then they leave and they go, what do I do? Like, how do I do what you just told me I need to do? I feel like I should, but I don't know how. So I'm going to give you a couple kind of practical ways that we can get a balanced approach to God's word. And again, this is to a certain degree is, is unique to you and what it looks like for you and how you would apply these things in your day and, and your schedule and all those things. And so the first thing I would give you is to, you've heard the saying, keep it simple. Uh, we're going to use something like that. It's keep it systematic. Keep it systematic. And the reason we say this is we approach scripture in an organized way. We approach scripture in an organized way. Many can approach the word of God in a haphazard kind of flip it open and see where it lands type approach. Just going to throw the Bible open and read the first thing that comes up and oh, there you go. And now there are times, let's be honest, there are times where we approach scripture with a specific question. Like I want to know what does the Bible say about this one thing? And so we'll start looking at scriptures that deal with that one thing. That's fine. But that should not be, or maybe shouldn't desire that to be our normal way of approaching scripture. We can go for a question. We can go for a specific study. But when it comes to our daily time in God's word, I would encourage you to keep it systematic. Have an organized approach. What do I mean by organized approach? I mean, have a plan. Have an idea of what you're reading, how much you want to read. Have a goal in mind. Maybe you would say, okay, this, this week I want to read the book of John. And so I'm going to, every day I'm going to read a chapter of the book. And now some people will tell you this is bad, that you shouldn't do this because you're robbing the spirit of moving and freedom and all this. I don't, I, I don't disagree that the spirit may lead us into a passage in a random moment at a random time. That's fine. But I believe we should approach scripture in our studies in a way of having a plan of how we're going to read God's word, God's word so we can understand God's word appropriately. I don't believe that robs the spirit of moving and freedom to lead us. Because here's the thing. Since I started doing this in my own Christian life a few years back and just reading whole books at a time as far as the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John, First uh, Kings, whatever book it is. It's amazing to me how I'm reading through just portions I don't always read a whole chapter. If there's a longer passage, I sometimes just focus on that. 
But I'm, I'm amazed that when I come to a day in my week where I really need encouragement about this or that thing in my life, and I open up to this book that seemingly would have no direct connection, and I'm reading in the passage I would be in that day, and God speaks in some way. Because it's a living word. He's going to speak to us through his word. And so I want to encourage you, have a plan, have a structure to your time in God's word. Maybe for you, that's, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe that's reading the New Testament in so much, such amount of time. Maybe it's, I just want to study this portion of scripture. Have a plan. When we're reading God's word, I would encourage a methodical approach, reading a passage or a chapter in context, rather than grabbing one verse at a time to stand alone. Approaching scripture this way will keep us from taking the passage or the verse and misusing that passage or verse rather and misapplying it to our lives. And so we approach scripture in an organized way. We also approach scripture with the growth or with the goal of growth in mind. So we approach scripture with an organized mindset. I want to, I want to have a goal or a plan on this today, or I'm going to say, you know, from 7.15 to 7.30, it's going to be my Bible reading time, and I'm going to read a certain amount of scripture at that time. I'm going to have a plan. But we're also approaching scripture to grow, to understand that I'm doing this, that I might grow in Christ. If you want to grow and live a Christ-centered life, we need to have a balanced diet in our spiritual lives. We must take God's word as it is, complete and fully the word of God. Growth does not come without growing pains, however. If you raise children, maybe you have grandchildren, you ever have your child come to you and go, man, my leg hurts, right? My arm hurts. And, and you don't know what really, there's no reason. It's just growing pains. Because as they're growing, which the father of a teenage son and an almost teenage son, I don't know what happened. Like everything is not fitting all of a sudden. Like jeans that used to fit are now not fitting. Like my youngest son walks out of his bedroom and I'm like, those fit yesterday. How are they already like flooding? What's going on? What are you doing when you're sleeping? Like you're just shooting up. Just growing so big, so tall, so fast. But those growing pains are necessary. Why? Because it shows we're growing. It shows we're maturing. And so when we get to God's word, guess what? There's going to be times you study God's word and you're reading a passage and it's not going to feel good in the moment. It might bring conviction. It might bring a challenge to our lives or a calling that we don't feel capable and ready to do. And so it pushes us out of our comfort zones. But we praise God for those moments. Because as we surrender and apply those truths to our lives, he is moving you from who you were to who you can be in Christ. He's growing you and strengthening you. And there's going to be some difficult passages, some difficult times, some bumps in the road. But we praise God for it because we're growing and we're maturing. I was so blessed yesterday. We had our men's prayer breakfast. And I was so encouraged. Um, and I don't say this to embarrass him uh, because he's quite a bit bigger than me. He could beat me up probably if he wanted to. But um, I don't think he would. I don't think he would. So uh, we were so blessed to have uh, Phil Garten uh, one of our newly elected deacons shared the devotion yesterday for men's prayer breakfast. And, and what he shared was so encouraging to me. And I believe it really was to the other men there that there are times God calls us and lays something on our heart and we're kind of wrestling with God. I can't do that. I could never. And he even said, I could never get up in front of these guys and speak. But because he just surrendered, he just said, okay, Lord, fine, <laughs> I'll do it. 
I want to serve you and I'll do it. And God strengthened him and gave him the ability to do that. And it feels not this amazing supernatural Christian different than any of us. We're all just men walking with Jesus. Men and women just loving the Lord. And so it's not that he's this like robo Christian, perfect Christian. He's just a guy that said, you know what? I'll surrender. I'll do that. And for to hear some of the guys even share like, yeah, I could agree with that. You see, sometimes God calls us to things. And sometimes those callings come as we're reading God's word and God begins to speak through his word by the moving of the Holy Spirit. See, as we get into God's word in a consistent, organized, structured way with the idea of growth in mind, and we open ourselves up to whatever God wants to do, he'll grow us and strengthen us. But it leads me to a key we must also remember in approaching God's word. As we approach God's word, not only do we keep it systematic in an organized way, but we also need to keep it gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. It has been noted, one author has said, It has been noted that every passage of Scripture, whether it's in the Old or New Testament, either predicts, prepares for, prepares for, reflects, or results from the work of Christ. It has been noted that every passage of Scripture, whether it's in the Old or New Testament, either predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the work of Christ. I believe that to be true. When you're reading the Old Testament, you read these stories that the Bible call shadows of things to come. And you're reading about these festivals and these celebrations and these great moments the Jewish people are celebrating, all these things of God and the goodness of God and the promises of God. It's all preparing them for the coming Messiah. It's all pushing them to keep their eyes towards Christ to come. We, as New Testament believers on this side of the cross, we read the New Testament and we read the beautiful stories of the gospel of Christ and what he did and all that the church did. And we we look back to the cross and we reflect back to who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And so the center of scripture, really, by the way, the center of our lives must be gospel-centered. It must be the cross It must be the truth of who Jesus was and is and who he is said to be when he comes again. I want to go to another passage. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 810. So 1 Corinthians 15. So we keep it systematic. We approach scripture with an organized mindset so we may grow and understand the word in the appropriate context. But we also need to keep it gospel-centered as we approach God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul writing here to the church at Corinth. And the apostle Paul, who was really the greatest Christian missionary we ever read of, shares his heart for the truth of the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. That word stand is so important for the believers today. If you know Christ is your Savior, the gospel is not something you received way back then, that now you just get to go to heaven when you die. No, no, no. The gospel is truth that changed us from living for self and flesh to living for Christ. We are saved, forgiven of our sins. And yes, one day we will step into his heaven. Praise God. We will leave this place and be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But in the meanwhile, guess what? We stand in the gospel. We stand in the truth of who Jesus is 
and who the word declares him to be. We don't just go, oh man, yeah, I was saved back then and I'm going to heaven one day, but in the middle, that's just mine. No, Paul says you received it. You stand in it, actively standing. Verse three of chapter 15. For I delivered unto you first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for your or for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now he goes on from there. Uh, chapter 15 is the beautiful summary of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, and the seeing of Christ, the viewing of Christ when he was resurrected. He was seen by more than 500 at a given time. And so there's such great evidence here to show that Christ really did die on a cross, was buried. Yes, he really did rise again. And he really did ascend into heaven where he's on the right hand of the throne of the Father praying for you and I. But chapter 15, verse 3 is a key I want to look at here. He says, for I deliver unto you, first of all, first of all, when we keep the gospel-centered approach in Scripture, we will see that this keeps us from making ourselves the main point. Paul says that the thing of most importance is the gospel. It's not us, but Christ. The English Standard Version, I love the way they translate verse 3. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That phrase in the King James where he says, first of all, is first importance. He's saying greater than anything else. The first importance, the number one thing, the number one thing when you go to Scripture, the number one thing as you live your Christian life is that Christ died for our sins. That, that's the number one thing, Paul says. If you can get this, then the rest of your Christian life will fall into place. If we are not careful, we will read scripture only thinking about how it benefits me, how it helps me, how it tells me how awesome I am. And this is a trend in our world today, not just among believers, but even in the, the culture. There's this trend to pick and choose scriptures that make us sound like we're, we're all that. Like it's all about you. And God's all about you. And we said this last week in our comfort message that if God's all about you and your happiness, then the church is all about you and your happiness, then the word is all about you and your happiness. And if you read something in the word that makes you uncomfortable or you don't like, guess what? That's okay. You don't need to read that. You just push that aside because that doesn't matter because God's not about making you unhappy. God's about keeping you happy. And if we aren't careful, if we don't keep the gospel central to scripture and to our lives, we'll fall into that trap. You could misuse scripture in so many ways to make it all about you. See, here's the truth. We are the crowning creation of God's creation. He created us and he said that we are above all of creation. He values us in intrinsic worth and purpose and he loves us and he died for us. You have value just as who you are being a created being of God. Apart from your gender or your skin tone or your financial status or your job or whatever else. Or whether you know when you walk into a fine restaurant how to handle the dessert cart situation. Like God loves you in spite of all that. Because he made you. He formed you in your mother's womb. You have value and you have worth. And if we're not careful, we start to think that means that it's all about us. Instead of going, no, no, God. And when I think about how amazing I was created, it just leads me to reflect how amazing you are. Your majesty. The truth is we are the crowning creation of God, wonderfully made. And equally, wonderfully in need of a savior. We have all fallen in sin. We are all in need of grace. We needed a Savior who would come in spite of us. And the Bible speaks of us 
but it's wholly and completely about him. See, even when the Bible talks about us, it always includes, well, yeah, but the only reason we can do anything is because of him in us. And so when we keep it gospel-centered, we'll remember that. When we go to Scripture, we will avoid making it all about us. But also, I believe keeping it gospel-centered when we approach God's Word will keep us from falling into some traps that we can fall into as believers. So I'm going to give you three things, and I really will do this quickly, I promise. Some of you laugh, like, mm, I don't know, okay. I want you to write this down, because one of these three things, I promise you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you're battling with this. I can tell you that because I've battled with all three of these at some point or another, and I will continue most likely to struggle in some area of these things. But when I go to God's word, keeping it gospel-centered, God gives me grace to be able to avoid these things in those moments. Three traps I believe believers can fall into when we don't keep our approach to Scripture gospel-centered. The first thing we'll do is we'll live in legalism. We'll live in legalism. Legalism could be defined as seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. And if you want that definition, I can give it to you later. I'll read it one more time. The idea of legalism is I'm using the word here, and this is from an amazing little book that I just finished reading. Someone blessed me with. Seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. See, if we don't keep our approach to Scripture gospel-centered, we will read Scripture, we will read passages, and it will lead us into living in a form of legalism where we think God is only pleased for, by me by the things I do for him. He accepts me only because of what I do for him. When you read Scripture in this mindset, it becomes a book of weighty have-tos and betters. You better do this or better do that to be loved by God. You better be a good Christian to be loved by God. You find our, we find ourselves burdened because you know you can't do it all. But you go to Scripture and you feel this weight because you're not keeping it gospel-centered. Even in verses in Scripture can be taken out of context to be applied to make you feel like it's all about what you do that makes God love you. It's all about what you do that keeps God saving you. So you begin to drift from your time in his word because you hate the way that makes you feel. You drift from time in his word telling yourself, I just have to... So much to do already. I just have so much to do. I can't do any more. And so you drift in your time from his word. Then you'll drift from church. Then you'll drift from your walk. And you'll find yourself looking back and say, how's it been 10 years already? Because you bought into the lie that the Bible tells you it's all about what you do and your obedience. And this bleeds over into our church, our bodies, how we approach the church, how we approach service to God. We serve out of obligation and guilt and fear instead of joy, happiness, and love. I better go teach that class or else God's going to be mad at me. Instead of, man, I can't wait to get to church this morning and see those kids because I love being with those kids and watching them light up for the joy of Jesus. Man, do you see the difference there? I better share my faith or God's going to get mad at me instead of, man, I can't wait to tell somebody what Jesus has done in my life. You see, if we don't keep the gospel center to our approach on Scripture, we will live in legalism. Yes, God calls us to serve. God calls us to pray. God calls us to give. God calls us to share and live for him. But none of this is possible without the gospel. It is vital that we realize that all that we need and all that we have is provided to us through the gospel. We can only do what we do for Christ because of the work of God in us through the Spirit. It is only achievable through him working in us through the gospel. 
So we live in legalism. Number two, another trap that we fall into if we don't approach scripture in the right way. We live only in our emotions. We live only in our emotions. We think with our feelings. We allow our feelings to guide our thinking. Our life in Christ is based on an objective, not subjective truth. See, when you live in your emotions, you go to scripture and you pull from it what makes your emotions feel good and you ignore what doesn't. And you live in this way of thinking and moving. And the next thing you know, you're making decisions based only on emotion. But the truth is, when we keep the gospel center to our approach on scripture, we'll read from scripture the truth, the objective truth that might conflict with our emotions, but lead us into wisdom and guide us into the right kinds of decisions we need to make. This is true also when we make decisions to sin. You will sin because you think it will feel better, feel good. It's worth it. You give into the lie that that relationship at work that is inappropriate, that you shouldn't be engaged in because you're a married man or married woman, somehow just feels good. And so you give in because you're living by emotions rather than going to God's word and saying, keep it gospel centered, Lord, teach me that yes, I need to know truth over emotion. Thirdly, and this is one I know many of us most likely will struggle with and have struggled with. If we don't keep our approach to scripture gospel centered, we will live in condemnation. We will live believing that we are condemned even as followers of Christ. When you read scripture, do you merely see your faults and your sin, not recognizing the grace and forgiveness available through repentance? Are you more aware of your sin than you are of God's grace given you through the cross? When you approach scripture, do you focus more on your sin than you do on the gospel that sets you free from that sin when you repented and trusted in Christ? Yes, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge we are undeserving of the gospel and his grace. Nobody deserves his grace. I'm a fallen man. I've sinned. I've done things that I would never be proud of. We've all fallen. But man, in Christ, we are set free. We are forgiven. and We are made new. We acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge we are undeserving of the gospel and his grace. However, we must not think that living in a constant state of self-condemnation is godly. Living in a constant state of self-condemnation is godly. If you think that, I encourage you, go to scripture with the gospel in mind and realize he does not want you to live that way. He says your joy can be full. Often we move from conviction to condemnation, ignoring the truth that God is glorified when we trust in him with all our hearts. And the power of the gospel that has set us free from condemnation from sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are beating yourself up for past sins that have already been forgiven in the cross. You need to let that go. Because God does not want you to live that way. And you are robbing yourself of the joy of the relationship that he has for you. So are you in one of these traps? Are you falling into legalism, thinking it's what you do that makes God love and forgive you? Are you living by only your emotions? And when you approach scripture, you do it in an emotional way. If you feel like reading, you read. If you don't feel like it, you don't. And are you living in a state of condemnation? And you go to scripture and you actually feel worse because you see the truth of our sin and you ignore the reality of the gospel. Have you been approaching God's word merely wanting something to soothe your spiritual sweet tooth while ignoring other passages in God's word because they seem to push and challenge you? Will you pray and ask for wisdom that in times that time spent in God's word, that you'll keep it gospel centered, organized 
and to grow in truth. I want to encourage all of us to be, to be consistent. None of us do it perfectly. We could all study God's word more, but I want to pray, would you just be consistent in God's word? Spend time in his word and watch him grow you and change you. Not just through the salvation that you've experienced, but in your life as a follower of Christ, that we would stand in the gospel and make a difference for his glory, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And Lord, I pray that as only you can, that you would lead, guide, and direct in all that has been said and done. Lord, we're going to have this time of invitation, Lord, and this time is meant to be a response time, a time of responding to you and who you are and who you desire us to be. And so, Father, I pray that as only you can, that you would lead, guide, and direct. Father, if there's somebody here, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Lord and personal Savior, maybe they've been living their life their own way and they think religion's going to get it done. They think just being a good person will get it done. Father, I pray that they would know that there is no good work that can be done to, to cover our sin, to remove our sin. The only work that is accepted by you for the covering and removing, rather, of our sin is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we come, Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, they would receive you this morning, confessing their sins, repenting, turning from their sins, and trusting in you, in your grace. Father, I pray that you'd be with the believer here today, those that know Christ, that have been approaching your word in maybe a haphazard way, Lord, just kind of picking and choosing what appeals to them in that moment. I pray, Father, to give us wisdom here, that we would approach your word in a way that is balanced, that we may receive the nourishment we need spiritually to live in a way that would honor you and to be a blessing to others around us. Father, I pray that you would be with anyone here this morning, Lord, that's, Lord, living in that state of condemnation. They know they're forgiven of their sins. They know that you've You've told them that you love them and that their sins are forgiven, but Lord, they still live under guilt and shame and fear for a past sin. I pray that they would surrender that this morning, knowing that you receive them just as they are by grace. Help us, Lord, to repent from those sins, to turn from them, Lord. We don't continue in the sin, but may we know that there is grace to forgive and to restore. Father, again, in all of this, may you be glorified, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a time of invitation? Would you respond? Maybe you want to come and pray. How are you approaching God's word? Maybe God would challenge you in that way and you would respond in this morning. Whatever it is, would you respond to what God is doing as we celebrate Christ and his goodness as we sing this morning?